Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Medicine podcast, a channel of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host for New Books in Medicine, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Peter Hotez about his new book, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism, My Journey as a Vaccine Scientist, Pediatrician, and Autism Dad. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, I'm a, a vaccine scientist and a pediatrician. I, uh, I'm an MD, PhD laboratory investigator developing uh, new vaccines, leading a research group developing new vaccines for poverty-related neglected diseases, or what we sometimes call the neglected tropical diseases. These are diseases like schistosomiasis and hookworm infection and leishmaniasis and Chagas disease. I sometimes call them the most important diseases you've never heard of. Uh, important because they're the most common, among the most common afflictions of humankind you've never heard of because they almost exclusively affect people who live in extreme poverty, especially in low and middle income countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. So what inspired you to write the book, uh, Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism? Well, the other the other side to my life is I'm also a, a parent. I'm married to Anne for 31 years, and I have uh, four uh, four four kids who are now adults. And my youngest daughter, uh, Rachel, who's 26, has autism and a number of other a number. She has autism and and intellectual disabilities. And I wrote wrote the book because we've seen this rising crescendo coming from the anti-vaccine movement claiming that vaccines uh, cause autism and when we clearly know they don't, but their their activities, which are very well organized and well funded on social media and, and their websites are starting now to affect public health to the point where parents are withholding vaccines from kids and we're starting to see breakthrough infectious diseases especially here in Texas, where I work at Baylor College of Medicine as dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Texas Children's Hospital, where I run the center uh, for vaccine development. So this was a real crisis, a public health crisis. And if uh, I felt uniquely positioned to speak up, being both a vaccine scientist and an autism dad. Have you gotten any backlash in the reception around this book? Or negative feedback around the the reception of the book. Well, I've gotten a fair bit of support from the scientific community, which is great. But of course, the anti-vaccine lobby in in the United States is very aggressive and unfortunately organized and funded. So yeah, they've uh, they've been pretty uh, pretty awful uh, out there on on their websites and on social media. Uh, so that's that's just a fact of life, you know. They they're out there, and unfortunately, you know, and and their message is is all about misinformation. Uh, they claim vaccines cause autism, and and they as well as other things. And I felt the fact that now it's starting to affect public health to the point where we're seeing children dying of influenza because they weren't vaccinated. The fact we're seeing breakthrough measles outbreaks, uh, especially uh, in the U.S. and now Europe as well. We really, we've had 50,000 measles cases so far in 2018. Measles 
I have to remind people is a killer disease. At one time was a single leading killer of children uh, worldwide. We ha- and then we have teenage girls not getting their cervical cancer vaccine. So we're condemning a whole generation of teenage girls to uh, uh, of, of, of teenagers when they become adults to cervical cancer. So this is a becoming a humanitarian catastrophe. And uh, I felt, despite the the uh, aggression from the anti-vaccine lobby, it was important to speak up. Can you talk a bit about your daughter, Rachel? Um, what was it like raging, uh, raising a child with autism and intellectual disabilities? Well, in, in some and I point this out in the book a, a fair bit, it's less the autism, more the intellectual disabilities that really... Uh, prevent her from from achieving her goals so so she uh, was diagnosed around uh, 19 months of age that's when she first came to medical attention we had noticed something wrong uh, from the beginning that there was something off and then she was uh, finally diagnosed at the Yale Child Study Center which is a world-class facility uh, for uh, for kids on the autism spectrum and, and other uh, and other uh, mental health uh, issues. So at that time, I was an assistant professor at Yale, running a research lab, and it starts off talking about that time, that time of life. So the the book uh, is a unique type of book in that it's both a science book and it goes into depth, explaining why there's no link between vaccines and autism and the anti-vaccine community keeps on moving the goalposts. First, they say it was uh, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Then they switched to saying it was thimerosal and vaccine. Then it was spacing vaccines too close together. Then they're moving towards aluminum and vaccines. And I provide all of the evidence showing there's no link between any of, any of those things in autism. And then explaining what autism is uh, and and pointing out how we have an abundance of evidence now showing how autism is a developmental progression that begins early in pregnancy well before kids ever see vaccines. So there's no plausibility to the fact that vaccines cause autism. But then in it, I weave in this story about Rachel and her life beginning when she was a child and diagnosed at the Yale Child Study Center but then uh, switching to when she becomes a teenager and now an adult and trying to find employment. So it's a very unique book of a scientist telling a very personal story, uh, and I don't think I've seen a book quite like it. When did you first hear about the link between the MMR vaccine and autism, and what were your thoughts on that when you initially heard it? Well, I like to trace the beginning in the book. I trace the beginning of uh, the modern anti-vaccine movement to a paper, a scientific paper in The Lancet that was published in 1998 that was ultimately retracted because it was shown not to be true. So this is a paper alleging uh, that uh, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, especially the measles component, had the ability to replicate in the gut, and then somehow magically that led to autism, or at that time they called it pervasive developmental disorder. And I talk about how Brian Deere, an investigative journalist for the Times of London, was under uh, took a, a, 
uh, an extensive investigation and showed how the paper was uh, fraudulent that ultimately led to its retraction, but it wasn't retracted until 12 years later. So this gave a lot of breathing room for the uh, anti-vaccine movement to take shape. And now we've got uh, it well organized now across Europe and in the United States, where literally thousands of kids now are not getting vaccinated because of this phony idea that vaccines cause autism or other things. Even though, as you said, the link has been disproven, the article was retracted, um, it's still a big part of the anti-vaccine movement, the, the link between vaccines and autism, both in the U.S. and internationally. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, as I talk about in the book, you know, they, they keep uh, moving the goalposts because they Oh, every time the scientific community responds with evidence showing there's no link between a particular vaccine and autism, the anti-vaccine groups come up with, with a new idea. Uh, and unfortunately, the anti-vaccine movement is well organized and well funded. Uh, where the money's coming from, we don't know. But in the book, I cite a, a reference or, or a paper, an article that finds there's more than 480 anti-vaccine websites out there. So every time you put back the word vaccine into your search engine or, or Google search, you're going to come up with a phony anti-vaccine website. And then, of course, it's all amplified on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. And the combined effect of this is, is very impressive. Now, adding to that, what we have uh, in the United States, especially in some of our Western states like Texas, Oklahoma, uh, and Colorado, we have actually political action committees that are raising money for political candidates to run on anti-vaccine platforms. You know, in the United States, vaccine policy is set at the state level. So these uh, political action committees, these PACs, are very effective now at passing legislation to make it harder and harder to vaccinate our children and easier and easier to opt them out. And the consequences are now affecting public health in a serious way. What does the term vaxxed mean? And other than the disproven link between the MMR vaccine and autism, what are some of the other arguments that the anti-vaccine movement uses against vaccines? Well, the term vaxxed is kind of a derogatory term used to describe vaccines, and it, it the, the, the most uh, common use of the word is in a, a kind of a pseudo-documentary that's out there called vaxxed that alleges, that shows kids on the autism spectrum at their worst with self-destructive behavior, then the voice comes over and says that this was caused by vaccines and alleges a vast conspiracy and cover-up by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. The whole the whole documentary is 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 false, right? There's there's no evidence for for any of those things, but yet it's very compelling. So, uh, and unfortunately, this is one of the other tools besides the internet and social media that the and the websites that the anti-vaccine community uses is is this documentary that's being shown all over the state of Texas and, and across the country, and then even into Europe and Australia now, I understand. So this is, uh, uh, unfortunately, this has been very effective. And on the pro-vaccine side, we really 
do not have much of a uh, anything to counter it. Um, we don't hear a lot from U.S. federal agencies attempting to counter this misinformation campaign. Uh, and so that it often results, it's often left to a handful of academics like myself willing to stand up and defend vaccines. Why don't you think we hear more from federal, like, like, I guess, why don't you think we hear anything or hear more from federal agencies trying to combat this? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to second guess the federal agencies. But, uh, you know, I I think probably what happened when this movement first began in the late 90s, 1998, the thought probably was, well, let's not respond to it because it, this is a cult or a fringe movement. We'll only give it oxygen if we respond. And that might have made sense in the late 1990s, but now this thing has really... Uh, grown so big and so large that it now requires a response. I mean, the other reasons, the other reasons are, well, the obvious one, of course, is who wants to get uh, put up with all of the aggression and cyberbullying that I put up with. So that's probably a disincentive for them. I, I also think that the federal agencies often look at national immunization rates and see that they haven't changed that much, but and that's true, but I think that misses uh, these pockets where we where we've shown now that you've got counties and districts where 10, 20, 30, even 40 percent of kids are not being vaccinated, and that's just asking for breakthrough epidemics of childhood infectious diseases, especially measles, because measles tends to be the most highly contagious. So measles is often the first one you see as vaccine coverage. Uh, goes down. And this is what we're seeing now in Europe, where so far, towards the end of 2018, we have more than 50,000 measles cases uh, across Europe, according to the World Health Organization. So Europe, especially Southern Europe, Eastern Europe is a disaster. And then in the United States, we've had measles outbreaks, of course, in New York and New Jersey in 2018, Missouri, Kansas, and then a terrible one in Minnesota, all of 2017. And this is just the beginning. Uh, we're going to start to see more breakthrough measles epidemics in the states that allow those non-medical vaccine exemptions. If the, the conspiracy theory is true about you, know, you guys being in Big Pharma's pocket and vaccines being bad, why would you then in turn still go and vaccinate your own children or vaccinate yeah, family mean, members to vaccinate their children? You know, the, the Oftentimes, what's been happening now is the anti-vaccine groups allege just crazy things uh, about me or about my family or the book. Uh, they say I'm secretly making millions of dollars off my vaccines for poverty-related neglected diseases like schistosomiasis and hookworm and leishmaniasis. You know, my wife says, if only, right? <laughs> These are vaccines for the world's poorest people, and I'll, I'll never make a, a penny of them. Uh, a penny on them on on the vaccine. So this is it's unfortunate, but uh, this this is what they're doing. I, you know what the, what their motivation is. Uh, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I know in some cases, anti-vaccine groups are peddling their own phony uh, cures for autism, which is in itself is a ridiculous concept. But you know, and it's terrible stuff they're doing to kids, giving them bleach enemas or. Uh, chelation therapy, which is so dangerous, or hyperbaric therapy. 
and that's all based on pseudoscience. Vaccines in America has, I'm sorry, vaccines in America has actually been a pretty major success story. Um, can you please talk about that for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I mean, look, look at where we are today compared to where we were in the 1950s. In the 1950s, more than 500 kids died every year of measles. Uh, we had polio epidemics uh, every summer. We had uh, many deaths from whooping cough or pertussis, and and now that's mostly uh, disappeared. Uh, in fact, in the year 2000, measles was declared eliminated from the United States by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But now we were allowing these diseases to return, uh, all because of this misinformation campaign waged by the anti-vaccine lobby and their political action committees. Uh, so it's it's very concerning. Uh, you know, we've seen some terrible things happen in 2018. The measles outbreaks that I've spoken about before, and then in the, in the winter of 2018 influenza epidemic in the U.S., we had almost 200 children die of influenza uh, with more than 80% not vaccinated despite despite the recommendations to vaccinate them. So now for the first time, we're seeing children die of vaccine-preventable diseases uh, because of this anti-vaccine lobby, and things are even worse in Europe. Can you talk a bit about what's happening in Texas now? I actually just saw Texas in the news uh, for the increase in number of uh, vaccine exemptions. And this, and the, and and because I live and work in Texas at Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine, this is the rise in non-medical vaccine exemptions prompted me to write the book uh, first and foremost. So Texas is the largest of the 18 U.S. states that allow non-medical exemptions for vaccines for reasons of personal or philosophical belief. And this, so parents are allowed to opt their kid out of getting vaccinated and they can still attend public school. We're up to now, according to the Texas Health Department, 60,000 kids not getting their vaccines. And those are the ones we know about uh, because we don't know anything about the more than 300,000 homeschooled kids not getting vaccinated. We also have only about a third of teenage girls getting their cervical cancer vaccine. And this is mostly because of the misinformation campaign uh, launched by the anti-vaccine lobby together with the political action committee that's very aggressive in raising money for candidates here in our, here in our state. Can you talk a bit about Rachel's teenage years and her early adult years, and how did raising a child with autism and intellectual disabilities affect and shape your career? Well, you know, it's, she's she could be pretty, uh, you know, Rachel is now 26. Uh, she can still be pretty labor-intensive. Uh, as a teenager here in, in Texas, it was very difficult. The, the school system here in Houston was actually quite good, and, and they really tried to work with her, but it was very uh, challenging for her, uh, both intellectually and also her, her behaviors. Uh, there were a lot of compliance issues. Uh, as well. And, you know, we at one point really worried and we 
go into detail in the book and and uh, my wife's narrative Anne's narrative is in the book as well about whether she would ever be able to gain any useful employment and one of the positive parts of the story is how Goodwill Industries really came to Rachel's rescue and our rescue and now she works two hours a day at Goodwill uh, sorting clothes and is making uh, a paycheck for the first time of her life and it gives her a lot of satisfaction and pride. So we're, we're, we're thrilled about that. So, so the book kind of ends with a, with a small victory of Rachel being able to gain some, some meaningful employment because of, because of Goodwill. One of the things you touched on earlier that I kind of want to dig into a bit is you've been, like you said, accused of getting rich off some of the vaccines you create and having, you know, a hidden agenda, um, yet you work largely with anti-poverty diseases or anti-poverty vaccines and do not profit from them. Can you dig into this a bit more? Yeah, so what um, uh, I'm the co-director of the what's called the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. This is a nonprofit called Product Development Partnership we're pioneering the idea of making vaccines in the nonprofit sector. And we have to do it in the nonprofit sector because the big pharmaceutical companies are uh, don't don't see a business model for these catastrophic neglected uh, tropical diseases because they only affect people living in extreme poverty. These are diseases like schistosomiasis and hookworm and leishmaniasis and Chagas disease. So we've we've taken taken them on. I'm an MD PhD scientist uh, uh, with a lifelong interest in vaccines and a lifelong interest in neglected tropical diseases. So we moved from Washington D.C. to Houston, Texas, uh, in 2011, uh, almost eight years ago, to see how we could set this up and 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 not only do the science required to develop these vaccines, but also to identify a business model that could allow us to proceed. And, you know, we've had some good success with getting uh, some extramural grant support uh, to help help us make that happen, uh, together with the support from Texas Children's and Baylor College of Medicine. But, you know, the, the end game for these vaccines is they will have a huge return on investment but not a financial return. The, the return will be in terms of improving public health and lifting the poorest people, a group we sometimes call the bottom billion out of poverty, but there there will not be a financial return. So, uh, and I think, you know, the anti-vaccine lobby doesn't know what to do with me because here I am, a, a vaccine scientist, I won't, and I have a deep knowledge of vaccines, I'm a pediatrician. I won't make will not make any money on these vaccines, and I'm also an autism dad. And uh, they've really stepped up the pressure. Can you talk a little bit more about the overwhelming evidence that vaccines do not cause autism? What is some of the evidence out there that shows that there is no correlation? So, uh, I, in the book, I actually have a whole chapter that reviews the evidence showing that vaccines don't cause autism. And it's based on epidemiologic studies of over a million children uh, that was conducted in the best, in the 
best biomedical journals, you know, and the and that takes you through one by one the lack of association between the MMR vaccine and autism. That's the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. That's the first vaccine that was alleged to cause autism back in 1998. I go through that evidence. Then what happened was uh, another group began alleging that it was the thimerosal preservative that used to be in vaccines. That must be causing autism. And I review that evidence. And then the then it was switched to, well, we're spacing vaccines too close together. And then it ends on claiming that aluminum in some vaccines causes autism. And it's all it's all misinformation and and the evidence showing there's no link is is just overwhelming. But then the other thing I do is I followed up with a chapter that says what does cause autism and the scientific evidence for that. And we have learned so much about uh, autism now, including more than 99 genes that are involved in uh, the complex genetics of autism. And the evidence showing that that actually results in physical changes in the architecture of the brain early on in pregnancy. So that with autism, you actually have anatomic and structural changes in the brain, including increases in brain volume expansion. And we provide the evidence showing that this is already a developmental pathway that's already set uh, before the baby's born. Uh, And then one of the things that I go into in some depth is talk about the time when kids are often diagnosed with autism, because even though the changes in the brain are happening prenatally, oftentimes kids don't get diagnosed, like Rachel, till they're between 18 and 24 months of age. And I show the evidence showing that that actually corresponds to a big increase in brain volume expansion. But those changes can actually be identified much earlier in life. And that's important because parents often remember, oh, my kid got vaccinated at 15 or 18 months of age. And they'll see uh, misinformation on websites claiming that those kids are vaccine injured. That's the term they'll sometimes use for autism. And it's it's false, and because we can show that these changes are beginning much much earlier than when kids were vaccinated. So, what are the actual odds of someone having adverse effects or permanent damage from a vaccine, and what kind of things could actually happen? Well, I, I go through in the book. Uh, the history of the vaccine events, adverse events reporting system, VAERS, as well as the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. I mean, there are rare, serious adverse events that occur for vaccination, but I go through the numbers to point out that the likelihood of having a serious adverse event uh, from a vaccine is roughly one in a million. Uh, And to put that number in perspective, I. I also quote that some estimates of the odds of being struck by lightning are one in 700,000. So the title of that chapter is actually called Struck by Lightning. So yes, serious adverse events do occur with vaccination, but they're they're of the same order of likelihood of of being struck by lightning. And, And that's important. I mean, one of the things that I do in the book is uh, I have a whole chapter, the last chapter of the book that uh, raises some of the most common concerns by parents when they read misinformation on the internet and come into the pediatrician or nurse practitioner's office. And I 
explain the talk, explain them one by one in a series of talking points, both to help educate parents as well as to provide useful information for pediatricians and, and, and nurses on the front lines defending vaccines. Uh, in spite of the fact that vaccines are safe, the anti-vaccine movement continues to exist and maybe even grow in both the United States and internationally. Why do you think this is? Well, you know, what the motivation is, I can't say, but it's what's clear what's happening is they've mastered the internet, right? They've, they're in the, there is now the estimates are there's 480 anti-vaccine websites out there. Uh, they've been very adept at use of social media, especially Facebook, and adding the message. They've been able to organize some political action committees. So this is a pretty well-oiled machine now for uh, for making up phony stories about about vaccines. Uh, what's driving it, I don't know, but the, but the problem is now we don't have a good uh, pro-vaccine lobby to really counterbalance this. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book was to try to be, you know, add a, a pro-vaccine voice to this chorus of, uh, of the anti-vaccine movement. If somebody goes on Facebook, Twitter, um, any other form of social media, there are just as many, actually probably more posts against vaccines than there are for vaccines. Um, these are from people who are on the, the far left, the far right, and even some fairly moderate people too. If an average everyday person with no scientific background has a friend or friends who are trying to convince them vaccines are dangerous, how should they respond and what resources are there for them? Well, there are there are resources out there. We have a lot of useful information on websites from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and from uh, the Gavi Alliance, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, and UNICEF, and the World Health Organization. But uh, the information is sometimes not all right there for easy for easy understanding and use. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book was to provide parents and pediatricians and other health care providers with those talking points to refute the common allegations or assertions uh, that are false from the anti-vaccine lobby. Do you feel it's even a good idea for experts like yourself to debate someone who is from the anti-vaccine movement as it could make it look like their argument is equal to yours? Well, I don't debate it. I mean, what I, you know, what I do is I do talk to parents, vaccine-hesitant parents, uh, because they see so much misinformation on on the internet that I try to correct them and, and make them un, and educate them and understand that vaccines are safe and don't cause autism or the other things the anti-vaccine uh, lobby uh, alleges. And most parents, you can have a conversation with them because they're not deeply dug in. They've heard something unsavory about vaccines from a friend or a relative or something they've read. But once you provide those talking points, they're they're prepared to go ahead and have their children vaccinated. Then there's about another 10, 20% that are deeply dug in and believe in conspiracy theories. And they're very, those parents are very tough to, to talk to. In fact, they, the fact that you're trying to talk to them 
often means they think you're part of the conspiracy itself. But uh, the majority of parents you can talk to. In your opinion, should people be allowed to get uh, non-medical vaccine exemptions for their children, and why or why not? So one in, in the book and in other writings, my recommendation is in the 18 states that allow non-medical exemptions for personal belief, we need to close those and, and, and stop, stop that practice. Uh, and this, and the reason is, is because it protects the lives of children. Children have a fundamental right to be protected against deadly infections. So in California, which was the largest state that allowed non-medical exemptions, predictably, they had a horrific measles outbreak in 2014, 2015, that landed hundreds of kids in the hospital. And the California legislature responded by saying, no more, no mas, we're not going to do this anymore. And and that was a heroic act that, you know, saved a lot of, uh, prevented a lot of children from, from getting sick or injured from measles and other terrible infections. So we've got to do the same in the other 18 states. You know, one of the terms that the political actions committee, political action committee uses is they use these kind of libertarian language, which I don't quite understand of medical freedom or choice, but uh, I claim it's a, it's a false argument. You know, that, that if you're a parent, you don't have the freedom to put your child in a car seat without a safety belt or a car seat. You don't have the freedom to keep a firearm at home unlocked. You know, this, by law, you have to protect your children. And the same is true for vaccination. Let's talk a little bit about free speech. In your opinion, is anti-vaccine speech dangerous enough that it should be considered the same as yelling fire in a crowded theater and that it causes panic and harm um, should anti-vaccine speech be legal well i think i think this is a, a subject that needs to be looked explored in more detail i, I think the in more depth i think you know it be, it's very be very interesting to bring the heads of or the leaders of, of, of Facebook and Twitter and other social media outlets together with people from Google and other search engines to meet with bioethicists and to really begin figuring this out because it is causing so much damage and, and so much harm. Uh, so this is, you know, I, I understand the importance of free speech, but when it's directly putting children in harm's way, you have to really... Uh, carefully consider the options. What's the future for Rachel, you, and the rest of your family? Well, the, the book ends with a big uncertainty, a big unknown. Uh, you know, will Rachel, you know, kids and adults on the autism spectrum uh, progress and evolve and, and still do interesting things with their lives. Uh, right now, she's she's still very dependent on her parents, on us, to provide housing and support, and and we worry about what happens when the day comes when we're not around or we're not able to to take care of her. So we're still we don't have a roadmap there. So just like I don't have a roadmap yet for how we're going to uh, uh, get 
get our vaccines uh, out to the world's poorest people because there's no business model out there yet uh, for it. Uh, I worry very much about, or both Anne and I worry a lot about Rachel's future and, and what that holds for. Well, Peter, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is what are you working on now? Well, right now we're trying to advance uh, all of our vaccines uh, to the point where they could be licensed and, and used uh, by the and, and be administered to the people who need them most, the world's poorest people living in Africa, Asia, Latin America, including in some of the poor living in the United States. So one of our vaccine, new vaccines for Chagas disease is moving into phase one clinical trials. And this is a disease that's emerged among the poor in, in Texas and elsewhere in the United States. So that's my, the largest chunk of my time is spent being a, a working scientist and trying to solve neglected tropical disease problems. I'm also starting to think about, you know, what might be the next book. And clearly, uh, I've noticed the importance of public engagement by scientists. I think one of the reasons that we have such a strong anti-vaccine movement, other than the fact that we don't have an active pro-vaccine lobby, is scientists themselves are not trained to know how to speak to public uh, audiences. And, and indeed, in my training back in New York as an MD-PhD student in the 80s, you were told not to engage journalists or speak to public audiences. That was seen as a form of grandstanding or self-promotion. And, and unfortunately, I think we're paying the price for that, those kinds of parochial attitudes, because my colleagues, for instance, at a policy group called Research America, have now found that more than 80% of Americans cannot name a living scientist. And of those who could, it's there are people like uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, and Neil deGrasse Tyson, there's nothing wrong with those individuals. They do a, they do a lot of good things, but the but they're not necessarily working scientists like we know them that are revising papers and grants and going to lab meetings. So I think one of the things that I'm working on is the importance of scientists to become more involved in, in public engagement. And I've been exploring this uh, concept that I call science tikkun, which is comes from the, the Jewish Hebrew term of tikkun olam, repairing the world, and how to repair the world through science and science engagement is going to become an important new theme for my work. Well, thank you again for your time today, Peter. Um, I'd love to have you back on the show in the future. Um, have a great day. Well, thank you so much for giving attention to the work and, and the book. <laughs>